0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff and today Greg and I are going to be talking about mountain bikes in wilderness. So a group of mountain bikers is working right now to end the blanket ban on bicycles in federally designated wilderness areas, which is not an easy task. Compounding the difficulty is the fact that not all mountain bikers agree that this is even a wise thing for us to do. So today we're going to talk about the latest developments in this fight and lay out some of the arguments for and against bikes in wilderness. To get this discussion started and make sure that everybody understands exactly what the issue is, Greg, talk about what wilderness is. And we're talking about capital W wilderness as it's defined and understood here in the USA.
1: So the definition of wilderness or one definition put forth is an area where the earth and community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor and does not remain. And that's more of a philosophical definition of wilderness, but they do take that into the interpretation of the law. Um, But more specifically, this is an area of undeveloped federal land that retains. It's like what they would call primeval character. There's no permanent improvements, no permanent ha- human habitation um, and it's protected and managed to preserve that natural condition
0: right and the reason we call it capital W too is that this is this is like a legal definition of an area you know there's a lot of wide open spaces in the USA and around the world where we might describe that area as being wilderness, you know being wild, but this refers to specifically. An area in the USA that has been designated as an area that is not going to be developed, it's not going to have any roads, um, and there are a number of rules against how that land can be used and how it should be managed. What is the current law regarding bicycles in wilderness here in the USA?
1: So currently, all forms of wheeled transport are banned in wilderness areas. So that includes all types of bicycles. But not only that, it prohibits things like strollers, wheelbarrows, game carts, and more. Anything that has a wheel on it is off limits in wilderness right now. And that's all wilderness everywhere in the United States.
0: How did this rule come into effect? I know the original wilderness law was signed by Lyndon Johnson in 1964, And back then, bikes weren't prohibited, right, Greg?
1: Right. Uh, Originally, mountain bikes or bicycles of any sort were included as an acceptable use in wilderness areas, but in 1984, that all changed. Um, At that time, the U.S. Forest Service internally decided to interpret the Mechanical Transport Language in the Wilderness Act to include all forms of wheeled transport, like mountain bikes, and I can read that one line. It really boils down to one line and one word in the act and then how they chose to interpret it. So the brief part of the act that really applies is this portion being quote, except as specifically provided for in this act and subject to existing private rights, there shall be no commercial enterprise and no permanent road within any wilderness area designated by this act and except as necessary to meet minimum requirements for the administration of the area For the purpose of this act, including measures required in emergencies involving the health and safety of persons within the area, there shall be no temporary road. Here's the key part no use of motor vehicles, motorized equipment, or motorboats, no landing of aircraft, and no other form of mechanical transport, and no structure or installation within any such area. That's a really long sentence, but the key. Part of that sentence is a mechanical transport, and how you define mechanical transport. Nineteen eighty-four, the Forest Service chose to define mechanical transport as including human-powered bicycles. But um, at that time, you know, there was no due process. There was no environmental study. You know, this was just a internal memorandum that was issued, and without any input on the matter, mountain bikes have been banned ever since.
0: Hmm. So, is this actually a law? I mean. There is a law, there's a wilderness law, and then there is uh, one interpretation of it. So what's to prevent you know, the Forest Service, some new head of the Forest Service coming up with a new interpretation and just issuing a new memorandum? Is that possible?
1: Based on my best understanding, that is possible. My understanding um, with the current efforts to get this officially cleared up in the legislation is to basically go over the heads of the Forest Service and all the other management agencies, go directly to Congress and get the issue sorted out instead of mucking around on the lower levels. So I think it would be possible that the Forest Service could issue another memorandum, but they would likely be sued by the Sierra Club and the Wilderness Society. That's already happened in a lot of instances where the Forest Service tries to change something, whether that's even specific use on a specific trail, not in wilderness, and then lawsuits ensue. So I think they're pretty hesitant to change or upset the balance as it were.
0: Right. And also, yeah, it's interesting to note that Forest Service chose to interpret bicycles as mechanical transport items, but there are other things that don't fall into that category, right? That are a little questionable.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, Things like technical backcountry ski bindings, those are really sophisticated pieces of equipment, and that's okay in wilderness areas. Or locks, things like uh, modern kayaks. And you would have to ask somebody who's a bit more familiar with the area, but I've even heard that the Boundary Waters in Minnesota, which is a wilderness area, actually allows some motorized trolling motors to be used to access islands and campsites within the wilderness area. So there are definitely exceptions that have been made in certain spots. And the line isn't clear, like what what is and what is not mechanical. You know, some people would argue that uh, even snowshoes are mechanical or things like a GPS unit. That's not a form of transport, obviously, but, you know, it's a really fuzzy line. And one thing I was really interested to learn, which I was also curious to see that this is in here, you know, there's a, a bit in that sentence that says, including measures required in emergencies involving the health and safety of persons within the area, uh, as an exception, search and rescue runs four-wheelers up into wilderness areas to like get people out, you know? So it's not like a really hard and fast line.
0: Yeah. That's interesting too, to consider that maybe there are a lot of different ways that, that this could be changed. You know, maybe sounds like some of the individual regional forest directors have come up with their own interpretations. So yeah, it definitely seems like a really messy situation. Ultimately, what are the bikes in wilderness advocates trying to accomplish? Are they seeking unfettered bike access to all wilderness areas? Or are they just trying to get it in some areas? How how are they approaching that?
1: Yeah, that's a really important point. The first thing to know is that, you know, nobody right now is working to get mountain bikes on all trails in all wilderness places at all times. You know, uh, the STC, which we'll get to in a second, they say that they're opposed to a blanket ban on mountain bikes in wilderness, which is what we currently have. But similarly, they're opposed to blanket permission for mountain bikes. Instead, what they're really trying to do is reverse the blanket ban Uh, and then subsequently allow the local Forest Service land managers in each area to decide whether or not mountain bikes are compatible on each trail in wilderness areas. Just a minute ago you said local people have created their own interpretation. Right now, that's not really possible with wilderness. The local land managers aren't empowered to make those decisions in wilderness because it's a top-down mandate through the Forest Service that's been accepted by all the other land management agencies.
0: Yeah. Sounded like you said in Boundary Waters that they are doing something a little different, right?
1: I should look that up more, but there are a few wilderness areas where um, certain accepted uses have been written into the actual creation of that wilderness area. And that happens at a congressional level because only Congress is able to actually designate wilderness. Like it's got to be an act of Congress. So some Exceptions are written into certain wilderness areas, but again, that happens at the congressional level. So it's coming from the top and working its way down.
0: Makes sense. Obviously, some groups like the Sierra Club are opposing the idea of bikes in wilderness. So, what are some of the arguments that these groups are using against this push?
1: Fear mongering. Like, apparently, the planet's going straight to hell if we ride a human powered bicycle in a wilderness area. You know, even if mountain bikers have been riding in such areas for decades, generations, like the zone that was recently turned into the Boulder White Clouds Wilderness. So, I don't know. I'm, I have a hard time setting up, uh, you know, the Sierra Club's fallacy filled arguments against wilderness areas. I can respond to them if you have a specific one, but, and I can explain Imba's perspective on wilderness a bit better, but I have a hard time even doing justice to constructing. An anti bike and wilderness area uh, argument. But if you've got one, I could try to discuss it with you.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, we'll definitely talk about Emba's perspective a little bit later in the show. But I guess one of the main arguments is that there are plenty of places that people can ride bikes already. And, you know, even some mountain bikers make this argument that, you know, they're hikers, they appreciate having a separate space for hiking having to share the trail with high speed users um so basically yeah the like separate but equal argument does that seem like a valid argument
1: maybe if it was separate but equal i don't i don't know if separate but equal is ever like a great argument as uh you know school systems have shown but but uh you know on all the bike trails outside of wilderness you still have those open to hikers and horses so it's not like hikers have some trails and horses and hikes and bikers have other trails, you know, it's not like one trail per user group. It's like the hikers and the horses pretty much have access to any trail everywhere at all times.
0: Yeah. I mean, not always. That's, yeah, that's a bit of a generalization, right? Like there are trails here in Georgia uh, that were built by mountain bike clubs and they've decided or have gotten permission to make it bike only trails. So I've certainly seen trails that are equestrian only or hiker only. So, I mean, it does exist. What's funny is it's kind of a twist of irony. This is a really similar argument that some mountain bikers are making against e-bikes because people say, "Well, e-bikes can ride on designated motorized trails, so why do they need to fight for access to non-motorized mountain bike trails?" You know, it's like <laughs> it's like all of us the the smaller group is always fighting for access to, you know, trails that the larger group has. That seems like an argument and it's a hard one if we're kind of making a similar one within our own Group of users.
1: I would push back a bit on the hikers and equestrians and the bikers each having their own trails. Not so much on on federal land. I think you can come up with one or two examples on federal land, but it's really really difficult on federal land to create a trail and say it's going to be bike only. Like there are definitely plenty of bike optimized trails, but most of the places where I've seen the separate. Um, systems are on like lower levels of land management, not on the federal level. So yeah, even around here, like we could make trails are really good for bikes and maybe are even intended for bikes, but to actually ban horses and hikers from them, that that almost never happens.
0: Yeah. Good point.
1: Um, But I I feel you on the e-bikes. I guess my argument with the e-bikes is like let the e-bikers advocate for it, you know? Like <laughs> right. the non-e bikers don't need to advocate for the e-bikers if they want to go out and work at it. That's great, you know? That's that's fine.
0: Well, and this pushes against, you know, maybe I, hopefully I'm not giving away uh one of your upcoming over a beer columns away too much, but that's kind of the argument is, hey, Sierra Club, like we'd love to work with you guys. Sure the e-bikers would love to be able to work with the mountain bikers, right? So again, yeah, it kind of all flows uphill or downhill, I guess, how you're looking at it. Another argument that people opposed to this give is trail damage. They're afraid there's going to be trail damage. There's really two parts to this argument against bikes in wilderness areas. One uh, is an argument that bikes do more damage to trails than hikers or horseback riders. And, you know, this one is pretty easy to discount and to say, you know, there's studies have shown that bikes produce just as much damage as hikers do and less than horses so that that side of it's not super valid but uh, i guess the other side of that argument is that if we allow bikers into wilderness areas there's going to be more damage because there's going to be increased usage you know we're going to double or triple the number of trips that are taken on these trails that already exist just because there's going to be more people, they can access them. And not only that, bikes can they can cover a lot more ground in a day than, say, a hiker. So that seems to be a tough argument counter.
1: Yeah, I actually don't think it's too tough of an argument. I'm just going to hit the second part since I think you talked about the first part already. But, um, you know, again, nobody's trying to get mountain bikes on all trails in wilderness areas. So if you have a trail that's already seeing extremely heavy use, a good example here in Colorado are the trails that go to the top of the 14ers. I'm even willing to say like, hey, throwing a bunch of mountain bikers on a trail that sees like hundreds and hundreds of hikers a day, that's probably not a great idea. But if you look at some other trails in wilderness areas, it could be trails within the same wilderness area just that don't run up to the top of these mountains. Many, many trails are falling into disrepair. For two reasons. One is they don't see enough traffic to even stay open.
0: That would be the opposite of disrepair, I guess, for these advocates, right? Like they want to see it as close to nature as possible. <laughs>
1: Possibly. I
0: mean, you, know, you do have some extreme – so you know, to sort of finish
1: my idea, like lots of trails aren't even open and putting more traffic on them could increase the usability of the trail. Um, but there are some extreme like um, hiking groups that don't like to hike on trails like we've even run into that locally trying to build some trails where people have argued that building a trail would diminish their off-trail hiking experience which is pretty wild if you consider you know it takes one step to step over a 18-inch single track um, and then move on with your hike so these people would prefer to hike off trails and not have any trail but the problem with that argument is that That causes actually a lot of damage, especially in alpine tundra, like in a lot of a lot of wilderness areas include alpine uh, environments. And hiking off trail does an incredible amount of damage to these really slow growing lichens, you know, so Mm -hmm. actually having trails and keeping users on trails is really important for maintaining the environment, maintaining that wild space. And if the trail doesn't exist, then, you know, you've got people running all over the place. It's actually better to have a trail and confine people to the trail than letting them walk everywhere.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So one of the other arguments that I've been hearing from some of these groups is really, you know, it's really one of these slippery slope arguments, which is that if we allow bikes into wilderness areas, then this is going to open the doors for other users like motorized vehicles and then you know, the resource extraction is going to follow from that. And, you know, eventually the whole wilderness area is just going to be destroyed. Is there any merit to this? I mean, in general, a slippery slope argument isn't really a fair and valid way to argue against something.
1: Yeah, I mean, slippery slope is one of the classic examples of a logical fallacy. So, you know, <laughs> even responding to that is is a bit rough. But I think in the current political climate, there's cause for caution, you know, we don't want to see resource extraction areas. And this sort of leads into maybe more specifics of the bill. It's like, OK, just riding a bike on a trail in the wilderness is not going to like put an oil rig there. Obviously, the question is like, what's going to happen like legally with um, some of the, the bill working through Congress, that sort of thing? And maybe there are question marks there, but if you actually go and, and read H.R. 1349, it's it's. Very conservative. You know, there's not really any room as I see it in that for any of these things like motorized vehicles, resource extraction, etc. And I know the mountain bikers aren't looking for that. Like that's not the goal of mountain bikers. Right. You know, I think maybe the question that some people have is what is the goal of the legislators working on this bill? And that is definitely a lot more murky because now you're talking politics.
0: Right. It's tough too, I guess, because we see with the original Wilderness Bill Act, how interpretation can kind of surprise everybody, right? So like when the original bill was passed, from our understanding, bikes were something that were allowed to be used in those areas. But then 20 years later, people said, oh no, no, that's not what that meant. That meant that you can't have bikes. And so here we are, right? And so I guess... Maybe the fear or the argument is that the way the bill is written, you know, it might seem fine right now, but you know, perhaps it's open to some interpretation in the future that we can't even foresee. The argument is just, we don't know what's going to happen with this. And so we might as well just leave everything the way it is.
1: Yeah. And I mean, but isn't that every law, right? Like that's the constitution of the United States for you. Like the constitution of the United States has been amended and reinterpreted and how you interpret the original um, text from hundreds of years ago is a constant source of debate, you know? So that's like every law. So I don't see that necessarily as a reason not to try and not to try to sort of right this wrong as Mount Bikers see it.
0: Yeah we touched on it a little bit, but the Sustainable Trails Coalition is the name of the group that's really pushing for bikes in wilderness. And it's a group that was formed for the sole purpose of getting legislation passed to allow bikes in wilderness. So Greg, catch us up on the STC's progress so far.
1: Sure. So the STC was formed back in the summer of 2015. And in the summer of 2016, July 13th, they introduced the Human Power, Travel, and Wilderness Areas Act into the Senate. And to the best of my knowledge, this legislation is no longer active. But H.R. Uh, 1349 was introduced on March 3rd, 2017, uh, into the House of Representatives um, by California Representative Tom McClintock. And this bill is still active. Current co-sponsors include Duncan Hunter, Bruce Westerman, Stephen Pierce, Kevin Kramer, and Dana Rohrabacher. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly from different areas of the nation. So that's currently working its way through the House of Representatives. And now the Sustainable Trails Coalition was a call to testify on H.R. 1349 before Congress on December 7th, 2017, just recently. And then on December 13th, the bill had completed markup and a Few changes, and it officially passed the House Natural Resources Committee. So it's definitely not law yet, and it's got a long ways to go. It still has to make it to uh, the floor of the House of Representatives, pass the House, and then something similar has got to happen in the Senate. But that's where we are, and that's uh, sort of the progress the STC has made towards
0: their goal. Great. Thanks for catching us up on that. We have kind of laid the groundwork for the second half of the episode where we're going to talk about some of the controversy surrounding this and some of the internal politics happening within the mountain bike community. So be sure to stay tuned after the break while we dive into that. The Single Tracks podcast recently clocked over a million downloads and to celebrate our sponsors are giving out a ton of great prizes. Go to singletracks.com slash podcast 150. That's podcast 150 and enter for a chance to win. The prizes include gear from WTB, Venturon, Jensen USA, Sombrio, Box Components, and SR Sun Tour. The contest ends January 31st, 2018. So be sure to register at singletracks.com slash podcast 150. That's singletracks.com slash podcast 150. Do it right now before you forget. And thanks for listening. We're back. Aside from the folks that one would expect to oppose this idea, like hikers and horseback riders who would prefer to have trails to themselves, IMBA, the International Mountain Bike Association, also recently came out against this legislation to allow bikes in wilderness. So, what is IMBA's take on this idea of bikes in wilderness? And what Do they think about the legislation specifically?
1: So IMBA's position is pretty controversial. I don't necessarily agree with it, but here's where they're at. They're basically saying that they think they can get more trails open to mountain bikes by working around the Wilderness Act instead of pursuing modification or a change in the the interpretation of the act. So instead of working to change the act or reinterpret it they are instead pursuing different types of land protection that don't use wilderness an example of that could be something like a national recreation area instead of creating a wilderness area they would try to push for a national recreation area sometimes they even try to move the boundaries of wilderness areas to create loops and in a place where a wilderness might bisect a loop uh, which I find a bit ironic because, again, that shows the malleability of wilderness, whereas we like to think of it as this really rigid, it'll never change if we create a wilderness area. Mm-hmm. IMBA has moved boundaries. So, you know, you are talking a little bit earlier, like, things could be reinterpreted. Yeah, they could definitely be reinterpreted. But they basically think they can get more done that way. And in a response to an interview question that I sent them, they were responding to this bill specifically Imba said, quote, the problem H.R. 1349 presents is opportunity costs and diminished return on investment. That's why Imba focuses on opportunities outside of wilderness, because there's more opportunity for more trail using fewer resources. It's a better return on investment, end quote. So in my understanding, that basically means they think they can get more done uh, by leaving wilderness the way it is and working on other stuff.
0: That's interesting. And it sounds like, too, that they're focusing on getting designations changed mostly for uh, new areas that are proposed for wilderness and not necessarily trying to get existing wilderness areas changed over to something like a recreation area or a national monument or something like that. Is that right?
1: Yeah. They're not doing anything about any trails that are currently in wilderness except for moving a couple of boundaries. So, you know, when they say there's a better return on investment, it's like, well, what about, thousands of miles of single track in wilderness areas, which include like the most beautiful places in our nation. Like wilderness already covers just some of the most iconic and incredible spots, you know, and basically writing all of that off. Yeah. One thing Imba is working hard on is wilderness study areas. And that's a bit of a separate issue, but wilderness study area is not a full fledged wilderness area, but it's an area that the forest service is recommending to, Congress as a wilderness area. And again, co- only Congress can create a wilderness. But once the Forest Service designates area as a wilderness study, in many places in the nation, they're now managing that area like wilderness, which includes banning bikes. So basically, Forest Service is creating de facto wilderness without an act of Congress actually taking place.
0: How long have some of these areas been in limbo, you know, that have been Sort of like you said, de facto wilderness study areas that see no end. They're, they never turned into an actual wilderness. Or is this long term or are we talking just a few years and then it ultimately becomes wilderness?
1: Literally decades. Like there are areas that have been 20, 30 years wilderness study areas. <laughs> wow. I've got one right across the river from me that I can see from my office, you know, that is been a wilderness study area for as long as anybody can remember, you know, and. They created a national monument around it, which, again, is a that is an act of the executive branch. So Obama designated that. But Congress wasn't involved, so there's now a big national monument around it. There's still a wilderness study area in the center of it, and Congress hasn't done anything with it. So it can be a very, very long time.
0: Yeah, and the ROI argument, it does seem tough because hopefully, and at least from from my perspective, and maybe, you know, I don't fully understand it, but it seems like this issue is something that, you know, it's it's gonna be really hard work, but once it's done, there's not a lot of work to be done, if that makes sense. You know, there's like a lot of upfront to get the ban reversed, but then once it's reversed, then we get a whole lot of single track, right? And if it doesn't work, then you know, we wasted a couple of years or something, but ultimately long-term we're still okay, right?
1: That's my interpretation of it. And the other ironic bit is, you know, the SEC has stepped up to do this work. They're not even asking Imba to do anything. They're just asking Imba not to really like get in the way, <laughs> you know? So it's not even like Imba's doing the work on HR 1349. So I'm honestly confused about, I think their argument is that, the land manager's time will get taken up evaluating wilderness instead of evaluating new trails. And it's like that hasn't even come to pass yet. That's a long ways down the road.
0: And either way, we get, we get new trails either way. If they're evaluating new spots or if they're evaluating existing wilderness, either way, the hope is we'll get new trails.
1: Yeah. In my opinion, that's a pretty weak argument on Imbus part.
0: And I guess part of the other thing that we're hearing or, you know, I don't, I don't know if this has been explicitly said, but there seems to be, this seems to be sort of implied is that Emba works with these groups that are opposed to bikes in wilderness, like the Sierra Club and various other wilderness groups. And they're afraid that by pushing for this, that it's going to upset those partners and they're not going to want to work with us on other issues in the future. Do you, do you get a sense for that as well?
1: You know, Imba didn't, in any of their statements to me, didn't explicitly say, hey, we don't want to piss these people off, but that is a a commonly thrown around interpretation. But as far as like the exact dealings that are taking place behind closed doors, I'm not privy to the information. I think it's, it's possible, but you know, what's interesting to me is like, I don't really want to alienate anybody. Like, that's not really my goal, but if Imba's goal is to advocate for mountain bikers, then that's what they should do you know it's like I don't you know an example is like the NRA I don't necessarily agree with the NRA but the NRA advocates for gun rights people like maybe they I don't want the Imba to be the NRA but it's like (laughs) do we need to be you know catering to the Sierra Club like I don't know like this is it's it's but I'm not a politician either so you know take that with a grain of salt for sure
0: Okay. So what has been sort of the general reaction within the mountain bike community to the idea of bikes and wilderness? And how are people sort of viewing the two different approaches that are being advocated?
1: That's a big question. So to break it down a little bit regarding bikes and wilderness, according to a poll that we ran on single tracks in 2016, 96% of mountain bikers surveyed, think that at least some wilderness trails should be open to mountain bikes. And that survey was a little while ago, and a lot has happened since then. But I found a recent article from the Mount Wilson Bicycling Association that was just published January 10th, 2018. And they shared the results of a poll just of their club. So this is a smaller sample size, but only 11.2% of the members think that mountain bikes do not have any place in wilderness study areas. So the remaining roughly 90%, About 75% support the Sustainable Trails Coalition position. Roughly 5% agree with the general idea of mountain bikes in wilderness, but don't necessarily support the current legislative efforts that are taking place in Congress. And about 8% of MWBA, the Mount Wilson Bicycling Association, are just either undecided or uninformed on the topic. Uh, I think it's good to get like an actual numbers from people because IMBA is not been great about sharing numbers of their surveys and there are very few surveys that actually have been done on this. So even in the smaller sample size and even with some people disagreeing, like we're talking 80 some percent that are stoked on bikes in the wilderness.
0: Yeah. So how are people reacting to that? How are they viewing Imba's stance about their approach to it?
1: After Imba's stance came to light in the letter that they sent to Congress, so Actually, let me back up a little bit and provide a bit more context. So as the Sustainable Trails Coalition was called to testify before Congress regarding H.R. 1349 and the the work they're doing, uh, IMBA sent a letter to the congressional committee that was working on this bill the day before, providing their position. However, the committee didn't ask for this letter. Nobody prompted IMBA from the government to send in this letter. They chose to do it. Whether they were prompted by some other organization, nobody really knows that. But IMBA said that they, what was their exact language? They do not support it. So they don't oppose it. They don't support it. And But nobody really is, is taking that line. You know, IMBA is trying to say they're walking a line and they're not opposing it. But that's a pretty wild thing to do is to write a letter and say you don't support something. Most mountain bikers have interpreted that as like, outright opposition against it and most mountain bikers as we've shown the stats overall show that mountain bikers are stoked on bikes in wilderness i mean a lot of people are feeling betrayed by imba or don't feel like imba's actually doing the work to advocate for mountain bikers which is what they should be doing so if you read the comment section at that point in time on imba's facebook page on some of the articles they posted it was it was rough i mean there's there's vulgarity there's insults you know, there are some 're in responses but man it was it was pretty harsh for sure
0: yeah a lot of people were threatening to cancel their memberships and asking for refunds in fact I think some people posted on the single tracks forums that they requested refunds and while they didn't get a response from mba they got part of their money back or whatever for their membership fee so yeah it's pretty serious people are seem to be very upset about this issue yeah a lot of passion. I guess on both sides
1: yeah definitely there is there's a lot of passion right now and yeah, you know, we wrote an article or i wrote an article and published it on single tracks back in may that did some interviews with mountain bike chapters that were chapters of imba and some that had left some that were on the verge of leaving but decided to stay and even at that time this is like seven months ago now quite a few chapters had left and A few had stayed on the edge, but now I think we we might see a lot of these chapters that barely stayed, like, just fleeing. So I don't know what that means for Emba. That could be pretty rough.
0: Yeah. Well, and I guess, too, we should mention that a year or so ago when this idea of bikes and wilderness and the Sustainable Trails Coalition we're just getting started. There was some of this conflict between Imba and the STC, and they ended up getting together and, you know, releasing a joint letter saying that they weren't going to oppose each other in this fight, and you know that they had different approaches, but they weren't going to get in each other's way. Ultimately, that made a lot of people feel comfortable with staying with Imba and supporting them. But then, uh, with this recent development with Imba, again, not opposing, but. They are definitely not supporting the STC's work that kind of pushed some people over the edge. People felt betrayed, again, because they felt like EMBA had agreed to at least stay out of the fight. What are sort of the potential consequences for this as it plays out over time? One potential consequence
1: is we could get to mountain bike through some of the most beautiful landscapes in the world on our bikes legally in wilderness areas, which would be amazing, you know, if the bill passes and this all works out. So I think too often we tend to be like, oh, what what's bad that could happen? You know, it's possible this could work. And if it did, it would be amazing. And we get access to... Um, potentially a lot of trail that have been close to mountain bikes for many years. And also if the bill passes and mountain bikers suddenly have access to many of these beautiful areas, I think they will be much more likely to support the creation of new wilderness areas and support organizations like the Sierra club that um, are dedicated to preventing government overreach and preserving wild areas. Because now all of a sudden, You know, we can use those areas, too, as mountain bikers, you know, as people that love the wild places but don't do any extra damage, you know. So I think it could really unite conservation recreation groups. People tend to focus on, like, hey, this is really dividing mountain bikers and conservation groups and things like that. And it's like, in my perspective, we've already been divided. Like, this is just highlighting the the divide that already existed. Because I think mountain bikers are conservationists too. You know, we don't want to see oil rigs in wilderness areas. You know, we don't want to see a Jeep road going over the top of like this beautiful, pristine peak. Like we want to preserve these wildlands too. And we want to enjoy them just on the backs of our mountain bikes.
0: Yeah. Regardless of what happens with the legislation, uh, what is sort of this divide or this conflict that we're seeing right now? What does it mean for EMBA and for mountain bike advocacy in the future?
1: That's a great question, and I honestly don't know the answer. Ted Stroll, the president of the STC, is not optimistic. He thinks this could cause a very serious and very negative divide that has long-term consequences in mountain bike advocacy. But things are changing so quick, it's almost hard to keep up with them. Just a couple of weeks ago, we just published an explainer article on this this past week, but... IMBA has announced that after 30 years it's no longer a member-based organization like membership doesn't reside at the IMBA level it so resides at the local level. So what does that even mean? I don't even know what that means. You know, I'm <laughs> trying to find out, but does that mean IMBA's even an advocacy group anymore? Like what what's going on? You know, you read the explanation and it sounds more like IMBA's now a mountain bike trail consultancy company that advocacy groups can hire.
0: Maybe it's a good thing, though. Maybe it means that they're going to represent all mountain bikers, you know, regardless of whether you're a member or not. Which, again, you brought up the NRA as an example, and I don't know how they're structured. But, you know, they seem to advocate on behalf of all gun owners, whether they, you know, are dues paying NRA members or not. And I think one of the challenges, you know, we saw like the letter that EMBA sent to the congressional committee talking about who they are and why they're important and you know they listed like you know they said we're Imba and we have 35,000 members or something and it's like th- that's tiny like who cares about 35,000 members you know that's that's not a group that any congressperson you know their districts are probably 10 20 times that big and we're talking about the whole country so i think that's a real challenge that Imba has is Their membership size is not indicative of the group that they are seeking to represent. And so maybe this is a marketing thing for them or it's a, it's a way for them to look bigger and to take on broader issues. And also it could be, it could be a way for them to get away from having to actually listen to their members, right? And this is, this is a fear that people have the stuff that they're going to advocate for. They're not going to be putting it up for a vote to see what their dues paying members think they're going to be doing the things that they think are right for mountain biking. And I'm sure we'll continue to disagree. And there will be various groups that agree with what they're doing and don't agree um, even within mountain biking. But it does seem like kind of a wise thing to do.
1: I think it's a wise thing to do if you want to maintain your job at IMBA. (laughs) Well, I think that the NRA is actually a really good example here because the NRA has some really extreme positions. And I know so many gun owners that don't agree with what the NRA is doing yet the NRA sets themselves up as advocating for all gun owners same thing could end up happening here with imba you know it's like if imba's not answering to anybody and they're just doing what they think is best it's like what if i'm like i they don't represent me but they're saying they represent me like that seems like a <laughs> that seems pretty messed up honestly yeah like like how how am i being represented with imba you know there's not even any like serious chapter representation on the board. You know, if they're cutting their membership, it's like, what does that even mean? You know, so like there would need to be a r- drastic reorganization of the IMBA structure for that to make sense, in my opinion.
0: And it's it's also interesting that the SDC from the beginning has said that they are not trying to be a long term advocacy group. They were formed just for this one issue, and you know, once this issue. Is resolved in one way or another, you know, the legislation ultimately dies or or it ultimately passes. Either way, they are not trying to start a new advocacy group. So for me as a mountain biker, I definitely think, I think that most of us can agree that we do need some kind of group that can represent us. I think we also have to get over the fact that like it's impossible to get somebody who represents all of us and gets it right every single time. There are a lot of diverse viewpoints within mountain biking. Um, we all have different ideas of how things should be done, but ultimately we do need someone that can represent and say, hey, we've got the interests of 8 million mountain bikers at heart here. The majority of us want to do X. And so we're going to advocate for that. That's a big challenge. I guess that's a challenge with any group or organization of that type.
1: Yeah, if they actually pulled their members and did what the majority said, then That would make sense to me. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, I, I don't think anybody's arguing that we don't need representation. I think we do need representation, but we need representation that actually represents the people, you know? I mean, but I guess that's the same issue that you have with politicians in Congress. You know, maybe you elect somebody to Congress and then they don't represent you the way you thought they should, you know? But then you don't have to vote for them next year, but there's no voting with IMBA. Like we don't get to vote for who's on IMBA. So that's, I guess, where the, the key lies. You know, we don't actually even have a vote, much less get pulled on our opinion, you know?
0: Definitely a tricky subject. I think we caught everybody up on where the issue is right now, what's being done. And we're definitely going to be tracking this throughout the year and as the years go by to see how things end up. Remember, if you're enjoying the Single Tracks podcast or you're learning stuff, we'd love for you to rate us in iTunes and Google Play. It's really easy to do. Just do it right now. Give us five stars. Click close. You'll be done. No time. And also, don't forget about the contest. Singletracks.com slash podcast 150. That's singletracks.com slash podcast 150. Go to that page and enter your email address so you can win some prizes. That's all we got this time. Talk to you again next time. Peace.